Okay, our premise, once again, is we're trying to increase revelation between me and Heavenly Father. And one thing that keeps coming out patterns in the scriptures is that one of the one of several times, one of the biggest influences as to what comes between Heavenly Father and myself is what's happening here. I think one of the great beauties of the gospel is that you control how much Heavenly Father speaks to you. You control. And that's why he allows this to open or close these. You control the flow of revelation from Heavenly Father in so many ways by what happens here. So we took a look at a pattern of our day, and one of the concerns the Savior has is the wheat and the tares. That you are growing up in an environment where wheat and tares are growing together, and you have a hard time telling the difference. They are similar until the end, but one is poisonous. So one of the Savior's great concerns is that you are living in a world where you can't tell the difference between poison and nutrients that are beneficial until the very end. Now, as I've calculated that, there's four possibilities in my mind. Two of them are fine. Two of them are painful. These two, I see wheat. I let you into my life. I judge you to be wheat. I let you into my heart. And you turned out to be wheat. I chose correctly. I brought in something good for me, and I was, I was nourished by it. The other positive is I look at you and I see terror. You're an enemy. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I keep you out of my life. And I live long enough to see that, in fact, was a terror. And I judged correctly. I avoided a poison. But the problem are the bottom two. Sometimes I see wheat, let it into my life, and it poisons me. I think one of the reasons he's telling us this parable is that affects this. In my life and in so many lives of the people that I love and I teach and I watch and I care about, one of the biggest inhibitors to this are the times I've brought poison into my life. And it's poisoned me. So we talked about keeping the poison out. There are things in my life I need to pull out. If I want to hear him better, there's some things in my life I need to pull out. And that's where we left off. So now we're going to turn here. Sometimes I see what I think is a tear. I keep it at a distance. And what it turned out to be was wheat. And it would have fed me and blessed me. And I'm going to starve because I misjudged this one. This week and next week, I want to talk about two very specific one of these that in my observation has a whole lot to do with my the flow of information from heaven. There is a wheat you are keeping out of your life. You are keeping at a distance. There's two of them I want to talk about. Today, I want to talk about the most important. I think all of us love Jesus and are terrified of him. I love him. And I want him in my life. But I am scared to death of him. And part of me is keeping him out. 
And so I want to talk today about dropping the vulnerability and letting it in. You've all seen this picture. Oh, sorry, I lost it. Open it as I turn it off. You've all seen this picture, right? Everyone knows this picture well. What's going on on the other side? If this is your door and he's knocking, what's going on on the other side? What's happening on the other side of the door? Cleaning. We're frantically cleaning, right? I know you do that with the company. The company's coming, so I'm frantically. Imagine Jesus, we're at the door knocking, saying, can I come in? And what are you going to do? Not till it's clean. I will let him in when I'm dressed in my Sunday clothes and the house is clean. Then I'm comfortable with him coming in. Tell me when he wants to come in. And when would I be best letting him in? When's the best time to let him in? Tell me. The house is a mess. What does he want to do? Tell me what he wants to do. Come in and enjoy the nice, clean house. What does he want to do? I want to help clean it. I want to help clean it, but I'm terrified of him seeing the messy house. I'm terrified of Jesus coming in at my worst. Do you see the irony? When would my life be best served opening that door and letting him in? when I'm at my worst. But we're scared of him. We keep him at a distance until I'm in my Sunday clothes and the house is clean and then I'll open the door. Come on in. I don't open the door when I need him most and when it would be the biggest blessing to let him in. And I think that's normal. I think we're, we love and afraid thing, you know, we're, we're lo- we love and are afraid of things that can have that much help in our life. If you, if a burglar, if you heard a burglar breaking into your house in the middle of the night, what two colors flashing outside your house would make you feel great comfort? Red and blue. Oh, good. They're here. We're going to be okay. They're here. But when you're driving, what two colors behind you are absolute terrifying. Same two colors. When I need them, they are the most welcome people on earth. And when... I'm doing something I shouldn't. I'm terrified of them. Isn't that the same thing with Jesus? And so I want to invite you to stop keeping him outside when you need him the most. So let's let me illustrate the challenge that we face. Turn with me to the woman with the issue of blood. Let's go to Mark and Luke's account. Mark chapter 5. Let's go to Mark chapter 5. So go to the New Testament. Let's go to Mark 5 
and then Luke 9. We're going to need both of these. Okay, so Mark 5. I'm going to do, uh, I can't do two, can I? All right. Let's start in Luke chapter 9. Sorry, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 45. A woman having an issue of blood. Now, forgive the bluntness, but that's a female thing. A woman with an issue of blood is having a female challenge. And how long has it been going on? 12 years. Nons, all the girls are looking at each other saying what? Tell me what? Be honest. Those of us who don't understand, 12-year constant, she's desperate. Right, children? I'd rather die. This woman is desperate, right? Now, she's been to many, many doctors and spent all her living upon physicians, neither could they be healed of any of them. So she has this brilliant idea. She hears about Jesus that if I can just touch the hem of her scarf. Now, according to the law of Moses, which they're still living, a woman with an issue of blood cannot touch you. If you touch a woman with an issue of blood, you have to be ceremonially uncleansed. That's a subject for another day. She can't touch Jesus without making him unclean. So she gets the idea of touching the hem of his garment. Now, when I say hem in our day, you probably think my pant hem. That was not the hem of his garment. The hem of his garment was a tassel that hung from his cloak. It would have been blue and it would have been right about here, except for when he walked, he would have thrown it over his shoulder. So where's the hem of his garment that she wants to touch? Down the middle of his back. In other words, she wants to do what? Sneak up behind him and steal a blessing. Have you ever found yourself kind of wishing you can sneak up behind Jesus and just take a blessing? I don't want to face him, but I want his blessing. Can I just sneak up and there he is? Can I run? <laughs> can I sneak up and steal a blessing from Jesus? She just wanted to touch the hem of his garment, which was behind him. And as soon as she touched it, we got to get Mark's account. Sorry, I meant to do this one. We're going to jump to this one in a second. But as soon as she touched, touched it, okay, here's what I want. Verse 27. So Mark chapter 5, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind. She's going to sneak up behind him and steal a blessing. I don't want to face him face to face. I don't want him in my eyes. I just want to sneak up and steal a blessing from behind and so she touched him. And as soon as she touched him, straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. After 12 years, she knew she was healed. Now give me the emotion in her heart. Sure. Tell me the emotion. Absolute exhilaration, right? Absolute thrill. What is Jesus in that moment? 
Tell me what Jesus is in that moment. Right there, he is the Messiah. We hope he is. Right? That's what I hope Jesus is. That feeling, that emotion, that's what I want when I come to Christ. Jesus immediately knew that virtue had gone out of him. So what does he say? Who touched me? Now tell me the emotion in her heart. That fast. It went from yes to holy crap. He knows. Now I'm terrified of him. And now what is he? He went from the Messiah, I hope he is, to the Messiah. To the Messiah, I'm worried he might be. He knows everything I've done. Of all the people in the universe, who's probably the most disappointed in me? Because he knows. None of you do. But he knows. And I know that he knows. And so I say, oh, crap. He's looking. I don't want him to see. He's looking right at me. Now, going back to Mark's account. No, Luke's account. I'm going to try and flip back between all of these. But going back to Mark, to Luke's account. Tell me what she does. How far away was she when Jesus said, who touched me? And notice that he turned. Another version says he turned. So how far, she just touched him, and he said, who touched me? How far away is she? She's got to be sitting right in front of him, right? And yet, tell me what she did. After being healed, 12 years she's been healed, and Jesus says, who touched me? Her first reaction was, wasn't me, wasn't me. Don't look at me. I don't want you to notice me. When all denied. Her first reaction to the man who healed her was it wasn't me. I don't want you to notice me. It wasn't me. Now this interesting verse. I don't I can't put it on the screen both when the woman saw that she was not hit. Tell me what Jesus is doing. What would cause that? So, who touched me? Who touched me? Wasn't me. Wasn't me. What would cause her to conclude that she was not hit? He's looking at her. He's staring right at her. Now, can I interpret this gaze? Can I interpret in your life? When, Bryce, when are you going to let me in? I'm waiting. 
you can wait till everything's clean and you're all dressed and the house is perfect, or you can let me in right now when you need me. Dripping in mud. I'm waiting. He's staring at me. Why are you waiting to let me in? And she finally says, okay, now you gotta go to Mark's account and love what happens next. Fearing and trembling. She opened the door, absolutely terrified. He's probably the most disappointed person in the whole universe in me, but I need him. Then he opened, she opened the door, fearing and trembling. She came and fell down and told him all the truth. Now, which one is he? What I need to do, I need to convince you who he really is. Is he the man that knows everything you've ever done and is secretly going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Or is he the Messiah you really hope him to be? That's the question. She is vulnerable. She's opened the door and she's wondering which Messiah is going to step in. The one who's going to shame her. Which one is he? This is the one we're afraid of. This is the one we hope he is. So which one is he? What's the first word out of his mouth? When she opens the door and lets him in, what's the first word out of his mouth? He doesn't need to say another thing. What's the first word out of his mouth? Daughter. Daughter. Does he need to say anything else with that term? So why are you afraid of him? Why do we keep him at a distance in the moments we need him the most? It's the idea of him shaming us that scares us. You've all gotten a call from the bishop, right? Hey, can I meet with you on Sunday? What do you do for the next several? From now until Sunday, what are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. Oh, crap. What does he know? <laughs> you assume shame is coming. And we do that with Jesus. I don't want to fully let him into my life because I've disappointed him and he's going to shame me. And nothing could be further from the truth. Let me see if I can convince you of that. Ready? Let me watch. Let, I want you to watch him deal with a woman taken in adultery. No question. This woman was just committing adultery and grabbed and brought to Jesus. Now, if anyone, should expect shame, it's this woman, right? 
How dare you? Don't you know what my commandments are? This woman was taken in the act of adultery. Now watch Jesus deal with her. Ready? John chapter 8. Jump to John. We don't need Mark and Luke anymore. We're kind of done with those. So go to John chapter 8. Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Moses said she should be stoned. What do you say? All of this was a trap from the Pharisees. Is he going to say it's okay to stone her and be justice? Or is he going to say, no, you don't have to follow the law and be mercy? They think they've got him trapped. And at first, he was not willing to judge. He sat there and he drove, he wrote, he as though he heard them not. When they force him, they insist, come on, master. I want you to pay attention to verse 7. He lifted himself up and said, he that is without sin among you. Was he describing someone there? But when he said, he that is without sin among you, was he describing someone there? Himself. He that is without sin among you, let him throw a stone, not you. The only person who can throw a stone is the one who's out without sin. And yet, did he? Did he throw a stone at a sinful woman? No. The only person who qualified did not throw a stone. If they hadn't been condemned by their guilty consciences, would they have thrown a stone? Probably. But the one person who could have thrown a stone didn't. Now, did he know she was guilty? Let him that is without stone among you first cast a throne at her. So has she committed, has she violated the law of Moses? He's saying she's guilty. But none of you should, none of you can, and he that can won't. So they all leave based on their guilty conscience, and she, she is left alone with him. Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now watch this miracle. A woman who was just committing adultery. When Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And the one person who knew everything she had ever done, the one person who knew exactly how guilty she was, said what? Neither do I condemn thee. Now, did he condone what she had done? What does he say next? Don't sin anymore. But I'm not going to condemn you. Here is the miracle of your Messiah. With human beings, judgment and condemnation almost come hand in hand. When we judge, we often condemn. And so we kind of take it for granted that anyone's going to judge is also condemned. Jesus can judge without condemnation. Jesus can look me in the eye and say, Bryce, you're guilty of sin. 
and not tear me down. With God, judgment and condemnation are separate things. Now, there's a footnote you've got to read. The Joseph Smith change changes this story completely. A woman taken in adultery in the very act, one of the most serious crimes, one of the most serious sins of the gospel. There's no question she's guilty, and there's no question she knows he knows. And yet, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And tell me how she walked away. Tell me how she walked away and interaction after sinning. Now, does she know she needs to change? Is there any question in her mind that her behavior needs to change? Was he true to, to, you know, you need to change? But did he shame her, tear her down in any way? I know this is hard to comprehend because I know I've never met a human being that can do it. Every time there's ever judgment in my life, there's a hint of condemnation. But you have to make a leap of faith here and say, if I ever face God, I know full well I'll walk away knowing I need to change. I don't think I'll doubt that for one second. I will walk away from God knowing I need to be better, but I will not be shamed nor condemned. That is who the Messiah is. He does not condemn. He knows everything I've ever done. And yet I would walk away glorifying him and wanting to change. So why? Why do you keep the door closed? Why do we keep the door closed? We need to be vulnerable and trust that Messiah. Trust that his reaction is daughter. Trust that his reaction is go and sin no more, but neither do I condemn them. When I need him the most is the moment I should open that door. I once had a student who shared, I think, a very honest truth. She said, what scares me about letting him in is being vulnerable. And this sense of being unworthy. Sometimes I feel like no matter what I do, it's never enough. I feel like when I'm asked to do something, I'm asked to do it perfectly. And again, I know it's not true, but I never feel like I'm enough. I, have, I just have it in my head that I have to be perfect or I'll be criticized. Or I'll disappoint others if I'm not. I don't want to let him in because I don't want to feel that feeling. I'm afraid of his disappointment. 
I've always had a hard time letting people in, especially those that can have a big impact on my life. I always fear what I will feel when and if I disappoint them, when and if they leave. I don't want to build a relationship in fear of losing them, especially if it's a relationship I hold close to my heart. If I don't let someone in, then they can't hurt me. I know he won't hurt me, but there's still a deep-rooted fear that he will by what he asks of me. As soon as I feel vulnerable, this massive wall comes up. It's been like that for so long, I don't even realize it's happened. And when, I, when it does, I push whatever it is that makes me feel vulnerable until I feel safe again. And I've pushed him pretty far away. Resonate with you? I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to face the disappointment. But that's not who he is. At some point in your life, you need to have a leap of faith and say, come in. Fearing and trembling, you need to throw the door open and say, come in. Let me share one more. Chronicles of Narnia. Who's Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia? There's a big, a big lion, a big, scary lion. In book seven, no, book six, book six, a girl comes into Narnia who knows nothing about Aslan. Her name is Jill. She's very, very thirsty, and she hears running water. Now, I want you to see the symbolism of this moment. This is you a closed door, and Jesus. Are you thirsty? No, wait, she hears water running, so she runs and she finds the water, and guess what's sitting right in front of the water? A big lion. Lion in front of the water, and she's so thirsty. Now, she doesn't know who Aslan is. This is you, the closed door, and Jesus. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. Isn't that what Jesus is doing? He's knocking on the door. Can I help you? Can we clean together? Can I help pick up? Will you let me in to clean and not wait till the house is clean and then let me in? Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, said you. Then drink. Drink, said the lion. Open the door. Let me in. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only with a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will, will you promise not to do anything? If I do come, will you promise not to do anything? Will you not hurt me or change me? Will you not give me that look of disappointment? Will you promise not to do anything if I do come? Said Jill. I made no promise, said the Jill, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat, girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, 
kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said, I dare not come and drink, said you. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. Tell me what Aslan's going to say to that. There is no other stream. Now, here's the vulnerable moment. This is him. This is Jesus looking at the woman who just touched him. This is that moment. Bryce, are you going to let me in? Are you going to finally drop your vulnerability that's keeping me at a distance and you're finally going to let me in? Here's the moment. Ready? It was the hardest thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down. What did the woman do? Wonder where Jesus, where I wonder where C.S. Lewis is getting the story. She knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. Why aren't you opening the door and letting him in? With all my soul, I testify of who he is. He is not a disappointed, condemning Messiah. The word out of his mouth would be daughter or son. And then he'd clean with me. He'd clean the house with me. And we'd do it better than we'd ever done it and than I'd ever done it on my own. Some of you worry that he doesn't want to come in. I've heard people say, knowing what I know about myself, I don't think he'd want to come in. Then you don't know him. Because I know. I know that he knows everything that you're thinking about when you say that. And he would still rush it. Let me convince you. One more. Uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, New Testament, Luke 5, verse 12. A man full of leprosy. Now, tell me what lepers did back in the day. What did people, what did lepers expect people to do when they came around? Kind of what we expect Jesus to do when we, right? Don't you kind of expect Jesus to, ew, you again? So here's a man full of leprosy who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Now tell me what he knows. What does he know? I know you can. What does he doubt? I don't know if you will. I don't know if you will. Not me. There's so many others. I don't know 
if this is the door you want to come in. How many of you feel that same way? I know he can. I just don't know if I qualify. I don't know if you will. So tell me what he says. First of all, what did he do? What's the last thing you did with a leper? What direction is he going? Away from or towards? Do you see the symbolism? He ran towards him and touched him. And if I could just, if you could just hear the whisperings of the Holy Ghost testify in this moment that Jesus, when you say, I know you can, I don't know if you will, I need you to hear him say two words. I will. If you're sitting here saying, me, are you sure? You know what I've done, right? You know who I am, right? Yes. Neither do I condemn thee. Let me in. I will. Oh, if I could convince you of who he is. But with every ounce of my soul, I testify that he is that Messiah. The one you hope him to be. He knows everything you've ever done. And it's not shameful. It's pure desire to help you clean up the house and live better and be happy. Of him I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.